you want to take out your sermon outline. It says, Great Sin, Greater Grace. I got a call uh, this week from somebody who looked at this uh, passage and said, how are you going to get Easter out of that? And I said, well, you'll just have to come and see. Because uh, when he called me, I had no idea. So, we, uh, but we are continuing in Genesis, and we are in Genesis chapter 6 today. And uh, we've gone through, we've, we've seen all kinds of things in, in Genesis, uh, positive and negative, and how God has dealt with that, and how even in some of the very worst uh, times and, and scenes and situations in the Scripture, there's always grace that comes in. And we're going to see that again today. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read the first eight verses. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for this church family, and thank you for this Easter morning. Lord, as we come to your word, help us to see you as a loving, merciful, kind, compassionate God, the only one who can rescue us from sin, despair, and death. For this, we need your grace. Thank you for loving us. Give us the desire to walk with you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. It is a little warm in here, so I think I'm going to shed this. So it would be really bad to like faint halfway through. The news has been dominated in the last few months uh, by the events in Japan. The, the great earthquake and tsunami, uh, nuclear uh, problems dominated the headlines recently. However, the world is not new to natural disasters. Calamities like earthquakes, hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones have been changing the face of the earth for centuries. And when nature unleashes her fury, humanity instantly seems very frail and somewhat subordinate. Cyclones, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes can kill thousands of people in just uh, minutes, in just moments. And often, the final death toll is never truly known. They essentially have to estimate. And it's impossible to compare modern and historical disasters and develop any objective 
a list of what were the worst disasters, but a subjective list can be instructive. And there's some challenges to it because disasters are measured in two different ways. By loss of life, uh, you know, very traumatic aspects such as uh, Cyclone Nar Nargis in uh, Myanmar in 2008. But they're also measured in terms of financial costs and property destruction. And so you can have, uh, like Hurricane Andrew in 1992, massive property damage, but only 26 people were killed, which is a tragedy, but it's not like the hundreds of thousands in many other cases. And of course, the world's population has been increasing dramatically in the last hundred years, and a far, far higher percentage of people live along the coastlines. So coastal storms and tsunamis uh, can kill far more people today than in the past. And finally, all the records of historical disasters uh, are basically just guesses. They're not, uh, they have no known accuracy at all. So I googled the top natural disasters, and sure enough, I found a list. In fact, I found five lists, and none of them matched. Included uh, a typhoon in Hong Kong, a landslide in Peru, a tsunami in Japan, not this one, a different one, a volcano in Indonesia, three earthquakes in China, a cyclone in India, two cyclones in Bangladesh, a drought in Africa, a flood in China, two earthquakes in Syria, and as the greatest natural disaster, um, a famine in China that killed an estimated 40 million people. In more recent years, you would add the Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami of 2004 and the Haiti earthquake of 2010, both of which killed approximately a quarter of a million people. And as I studied that list, it struck me as incomplete. Because if we accept the biblical record of Genesis, then no such list is complete without including the biblical flood as the, in the number one spot. All the other disasters are local in nature. But Genesis describes a vast flood that covers the entire earth. And this is the first, actually, of several sermons on Noah and the flood. As we begin our study of this event, I want to focus on this very crucial point. If this story is true, that is, if it really happened, if there was once a great flood that covered the entire earth, then what the Bible is describing in Genesis 6 through 9 is the greatest single natural disaster in the history of the world. It's so great, so vast, so enormous, that no other event in history comes close to it. It's number one, and there is no number two. And if you think about it, it's so stupendous as to be mind-boggling. If you try to imagine a flood of that magnitude, one question keeps floating to the surface. Why would God do such a thing? We know the flood was a, a judgment on human sin. But what could the people of pre, the pre-flood world have done that was so horrendous that God decided to hit the delete button? and wipe out all humanity with the exception of Noah and his family. What sort of sin brings on a judgment like the flood? We think it wasn't that many people, but as we learned last week, Genesis 5 covered 1,600 years. There was this spectacular growth, explosion in population. So we really don't know how many people 
there were. And my second question is, what does all this have to do with Easter? Well, I'm going to try to answer both of those questions for you this morning. We're in Genesis 6, and we're going to focus in on these first eight verses. We're going to look how that plays out uh, in the Bible and how this story intersects with the story of our own lives. Uh, Last week, we talked about Enoch and how he walked with God and how God had taken him up to heaven without having to face death. And I mentioned the spiritual impact that would have had on his contemporaries, what they would have experienced when they realized that Enoch had been taken up to heaven. And not a few, we think, would respond well and begin to walk uh, with God and as a result live their life and die in faith. But we also have to remember that Genesis 5 covered over 1,600 years, nearly as much time as the rest of the Bible combined. And so with the passing of time and the exponential growth of the population, the ancient culture's memory of Enoch begins to fade. And so they, uh, I imagine they've come to regard the whole episode with somewhat of a dismissive skepticism. You know, it was so long ago. Life was so different then. We've got our own living to do now. And so this whole pre-flood culture begins this headlong plunge into depravity so deep that God says it deserves to die. The account is is both appalling and sobering. The first thing we see, first part of Genesis 6, we see humanity degraded. Humanity degraded. Look at the first four verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I want to focus your attention on three things here in Genesis 6. And the first thing we see in these first four verses, we're reminded of how sin increased in the old world of Adam. And we're in the generations of Adam uh, still. And those verses remind us of a very important spiritual lesson, that man's rebellion never goes unnoticed. Man's rebellion never goes unnoticed. The Lord sees everything even when we don't think he's looking. We have any problem with God seeing you When you sin, we just don't think he can see me when I sin. We understand that he sees you. You're bad. But we don't get that he sees me. I can get away with stuff. Not so biblically. Man's rebellion is never unnoticed. And when God brings judgment in Scripture, he always gives the reasons for that judgment. And it's always proportionate to the sin that's being punished. And so God is beginning to tell us why the old world, the world prior to Noah, the world, uh, the old uh, Adamic world, why that world deserves to be judged. And he's going to explain to us why this judgment is uh, deserved to be so severe. So the very scale of God's judgment in the flood, in the time of Noah, is indicative of the depravity of the people who lived before the flood. It's a picture of the perversity of the hearts, 
the pervasiveness of their sin and how heinous their sin was in the sight of God. And so we come to Genesis 6 and we're immediately plunged into a bit of a conundrum. That's like a puzzle. But I think it sounds cool. All the interpreters of Scripture have a hard time with these four verses. They have a hard time explaining what it means when Moses said, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They don't have any problem with the attractive part. And then in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth. So there's lots of mysteries in this passage. What does sons of God mean? Who are the Nephilim? The good old King James Nephilim is uh, translated as giants. In those days, there were giants in the land. Moses said, it's not a bad translation. But modern translations simply leave this word untranslated. They just copy the Hebrew. And it lets you know the translators themselves are a little bit nervous about trying to give you an English word because they're not quite sure what it means. So what in the world do these two verses mean when it talks about the sons of God marrying the daughters of man? Well, there's at least, well, I found five interpretations. I'm going to say there's three major interpretations on the market. And I want to cover those with you briefly because they determine the meaning of the passage. Our ultimate desire is to determine uh, what this passage means and how it applies to our life and applies to our worship uh, with the Lord and our walk with him. So determining its meaning is very important. And the first view of this passage is that the phrase, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, was that there was intermarriage between angels and human women, particularly fallen angels. You can find that interpretation going all the way back to the early days of the church. And there's some modern interpreters who hold to that view. And there's some linguistic reasons and some New Testament allusions that people use. Uh, first of all, the phrase sons of God usually, not always, but usually refers to angels in the Old Testament. And so people will go, well, you see, there's the phrase sons of God. This clearly must mean angels because it does most everywhere else. Furthermore, those that hold this view argue that there's two New Testament passages that seem to allude to this passage in Genesis. Now, whenever you say it seems to allude, you're on thin ice right there. But those are in 2 Peter and in Jude. And it's claimed uh, by those who hold this view, these passages indicate that angels were intermarrying with uh, humans. Now, there's several weighty arguments against that. First of all, there's no reference to angels in this context. In fact, there's no reference to angels at all in the first six chapters of Genesis. Furthermore, that phrase, take wives, that we find here is standard language for marrying. And Jesus explicitly tells us in all four of the Gospels that angels do not marry. And since angels are mentioned nowhere else, it would be a bit strange that they would be introduced without any explanation whatsoever in such an important passage. And finally, if you look at those New Testament passages, Jude in particular, you'll see that Jude is talking about fornication, not about marriage. So the illusion doesn't seem to be a reference to Genesis 6. So there's good reasons for rejecting that view. The second view is that these are demons uh, who've inhabited the bodies of men in order to take these women as their wives. 
It has all the same problems as the first view. Plus, there's no way that Moses would refer to demonized men as sons of God. So we're going to throw that one out. That brings us to our third and final one. I know you'll be relieved. But it's important, and that's this particular passage is referring to the intermarriage between the line of Seth, the godly line, and the line of Cain, the line which rejected the Lord. Or to speak of it in terms of Genesis 3, the intermarriage between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Perhaps you remember I told you back in Genesis 3 that Moses inaugurated a theme that runs through the whole book of Genesis that we're constantly presented with these two different people, godly and ungodly. We're going to see a number of brothers where one is godly and one is ungodly. We're going to see that situation play itself out repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis. And so there is the line descending from the woman, which is the godly line, which represents the line of salvation, but also the line of the servant, which represents wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. And I think this passage is speaking of marriage of the sons of God from the line of Seth and the daughters of man uh, who are the descendants of Cain. And I think the reasons for this interpretation are strong. The concept of a godly line has been established in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Moses has already spent a lot of time establishing that there's an ungodly line and a godly line. So contextually, this fits. It fits. It's more true to the context of Genesis than anything else. Second, the concept of sonship based on divine election, which Paul makes clear in Romans, sons of God is used in reference to those who believe in the Lord and are favored by him. So that's very important, not only in Genesis, not only in the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. And third, if you look at all of the first five books of the Bible, which if you remember were being written at the time of the Exodus, uh, particularly Genesis, to give to the Israelites as they're out in the wilderness, there are numerous warnings given by Moses against what? Against intermarriage of believers and unbelievers. Specifically in the book of Genesis, there are several passages which indicate God's displeasure with the godly line when it intermarries with the ungodly line, specifically with the marriage of Esau to a Canaanite woman in Genesis 26 and the relations between Dinah and the Shechemites in Genesis 34. So I think the strongest interpretation that we can offer is Moses is speaking of intermarriage between the line of Seth, the godly line, and the line of Cain, the ungodly line. So you have the sons of God and the daughters of man. But the context settles it for us because at the end of verse 2, there's this very interesting phrase that says, and they took wives any they chose. Moses seems to be indicating here that the sons of God, those in the line of Seth, in rebellion against God's will, instead of choosing the daughters of God, chose anybody they wanted to. In this case, it specifically means the daughters of man those from the line of Cain. The point of the passage is that they allowed superficial reasons to bring about this intermarriage between those who believed in the Lord and those who don't. 
And what's not said, but I think is implied, is since the sons of God are marrying ungodly women, who's left for the daughters of God to marry? That's right, ungodly men. And so we have this problem of the godly marrying the ungodly. And for the most part, the godly end up following the ungodly, drift away from the faith, and drift into idolatry and immorality and all kinds of sin which grieves the heart of God. And this happens throughout the Old Testament. If you read any of the history, this is a constant problem. In fact, this is the main reason when God sends the, uh, his people into the promised land, he tells them uh, to wipe those people out, those ungodly people out. Otherwise, you're going to fall in love with them and love them and marry them and start following their gods. And of course, they disobey God, and that's exactly what happens. Over and over and over again. We also see there are specific instructions in the New Testament for believers to only marry believers. This is not a new problem. It's never gone away. We've been battling this sin for thousands of years. I know we have a number of people who are not married. Pay attention. God takes this very, very seriously. Now, the point of the passage is not that the men had just then in Genesis 6 discovered that the women were beautiful. We've known women were beautiful since Adam said, wow, when he first saw Eve. However, the beauty of these women overrode their spiritual judgment so that the line of faith uh, should be kept pure, and it was not. And the phrase, any they chose, tips you off that there's something wrong here. And that something is the sinful intermarriage with the godly and the ungodly. So if you look at verse 3, the very beginning of that verse, you'll see these words. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. And this passage is basically saying God is angry with man because of these actions. Notice he's not angry at angels or fallen angels. He's not angry with demons. He's angry at man. In other words, the children of God who ought to have known better have intermarried and weakened the faith. There's no angelic factors anywhere in the context. What's being spoken here what uh, gets God angry is the intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly. And it may not sound like a big deal to us, but biblically, this infuriates God. And verse 3 shows you his response. It's a sign of his judgment. He declares he will not strive with man forever. And although sin is rampant, and uh, there's lots going on in the world at this time, still covering a long period of time. Uh, human accomplishments, human power is very apparent in this day and age. We see that in verse 4. These are the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This verse reminds us that human accomplishment and power looks very impressive, even if it's in the midst of a spiritual breakdown in our society. Now, if all of this is starting to sound familiar, it should. You, the more you read it, the more it sounds like our newspaper. There's giants in those days. 
But Moses is telling you that even in these days of tremendous accomplishment and uh, incredible things being done by the men who lived in those times, there's a degeneracy and depravity that's hard to describe. I think Moses is giving us a very real assessment of the impressive feats and ability of the people in this generation. And yet at the same time, he's telling you they're spiritually degenerate. They're incredible. They're giants. They're mighty. They did amazing deeds. But they're spiritually degenerate. Man may seem to be the master of his domain, but when he rebels against the Lord, there will be consequences. The women were beautiful. The men were mighty. The children were above average. They did feats of renown. And God is not impressed. And so judgment comes. Everything can seem to be going well in our lives on the surface. But if we're out of accord with God, then judgment will surely follow. It's exactly what we see in the very next section. We're given a divine declaration, verses 5 through 7. A divine declaration. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to come back uh, to it later uh, in Genesis. But it's hard to conceive of a, a more... Uh, emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart. The words, every only continually leave nothing out. Their depravity was not temporary. Uh, there was no, this was, uh, uh, there was no relenting. There's no repentance. There's no hesitation. There's just depravity. And this relentless depravity sets divine judgment on its inevitable course. God sees our hearts. It's one of the things we learn from this passage. There's no escaping accounting for what we think and what we say and what we do. And something very hard here is said in verse 6. Moses gives us a peek at God's heart. said, the Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. First of all, we shouldn't think God's surprised by all this. God's eternal joy can't be disturbed. He's not a disinterested observer of the human scene. And one of the marks of personality is feeling. And here we, in Genesis, we hear that God's heart is filled with pain. We're told the Lord is sorry he made man on the earth. Now, I think this is what is called an anthropor, uh, anthropomorphism, which is an ascription of human attributes to God. We know biblically that God is a spirit and has not a body like man. But many times we'll read the hand of the Lord. It's an anthropomorphism, which just means in order to make it understandable, we're given human attributes. And here they're given human emotions uh, to God. And it's used to emphasize the greatness, the powerfulness, the strength of God's disgust for man's sin. When God is sorry, it's not a, like necessarily like our kind of sorry. 
it's almost an angry sorry. It's a disgusted uh, feeling. Doesn't mean that God changed his mind. Doesn't mean that God's caught off guard. It doesn't mean that he made a mistake and he wishes he hadn't made it. It's talking about God's disgust for sin. And God responds with this declaration of judgment in verse 7. He says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. His judgment is going to involve a complete erasure of man and all the accompanying creatures from existence. And the destruction of everything from man to animals has to do with the fact that man was given uh, sovereignty over the earth. The creatures were created for him and they were all involved in the fall. So there's no half measures in dealing with sin. And we're going to see that play out over the next several chapters as we get a description of this whole process that brings about uh, the flood and how it's dealt with. But in the midst of this sin and judgment, this somewhat depressing passage, there's hope. And in this case, hope's name was Noah. And with Noah we see saving grace. With Noah we see saving grace. Verse 8. Just as there's no half measures in executing judgment, there's no half measures in effecting salvation. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in Hebrew is chesed. You have to say that a number of times. In Greek, it would be translated grace. It's translated loving kindness, uh, unmerited favor. It's all of grace. And Noah had responded like Enoch to the grace of God. And therefore, the scriptures tell us that he walked with God. And like Enoch, he walked in intimacy and obedience with God. Noah knew God. But Noah is not saved by his righteousness. He was saved by grace. By himself, he would have perished like the rest of them. And this side of the flood, we don't have to fear another universal deluge. We get that promise in chapter 9. Nevertheless, we have to fear a more lethal flood, that of being forever drowned between the waves of our own sin. And our only hope is in God's great grace. The grace of God here towards one man becomes the salvation of humanity. And so we see God's grace is the only hope. Genesis 6-8 is the first occurrence of this word grace in the Bible. It's the first time this word chesed is used. And it is the dominant word of the Old Testament. It's translated here as favor, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what does grace mean? Unmerited divine favor. In other words, although all deserve punishment for sin, grace shows Favor in spite of the sin. Grace is unmerited divine favor in spite of deserving judgment. Describes the blessing that God gives to those who don't deserve it. Don't read this verse and think, well, you know, Noah was a really good man, a, a righteous man, and because he obeyed God, he earned God's grace. That's impossible. Doesn't happen that way. Noah doesn't earn anything. Grace is given to him the same way it's given to people today. Either grace is a gift or it isn't grace at all. So instead of saying Noah found grace, maybe it would be more correct to say that grace found Noah. Grace found him and saved him and his whole family. And I think there's two important truths that we can learn from this verse 
And first is that grace is available in the darkest hours. Even though the world is rushing headlong into judgment, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's never a pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Don't say, I am too bad a sinner to ever be saved. You don't know that. Don't say, God could never forgive me. Yes, he can. And he will if you'll cry out to him. Don't say, my husband is too far gone to be saved. You don't want to say, you know, I'm going to stop praying for that person. They're now hopeless. You don't know that. Where there's life, there's hope. We have to leave judgment in the hands of the Lord. So keep praying. I'm sure there's some in the room today that somebody sometimes said it's too late for them. They're hopeless, and yet here you are. If you don't know the Lord, seek him while he may be found. Turn to him. Come to him. Trust in him. This is the day of grace. And though thousands may be perishing, though your friends and family may turn away, there is hope for you and plentiful grace if you will only come to Jesus. Grace is available at the darkest times. And second, grace is the only means of escape. It was Noah better than his contemporaries? I don't think so. I think he was a sinner just like them. But he found grace and was spared. He turned to the Lord and was delivered. Hebrews 11 uh, tells us that by faith, Noah was saved. And his family and what Noah did, you can do. By grace, we can be delivered on the darkest days and from the deepest pit. Now, I admit, grace is a hard concept to grasp. I define it as God doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. It's God coming to our rescue when we're trapped in sin. And I've said this many times. I'll say it again. It is all of grace from beginning to end. It's interesting, I think, that we finish with the very last verse of what Moses calls the book of Adam. We started last week in Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The very next sentence that we're going to get to will be the book of Noah. Genesis 6.9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I love that verse 8 comes before verse 9. Noah found grace. Verse 9, Noah walked with God. And so what you see here in these last couple verses of our passage, verses 7 and 8, the only two possible responses of the Lord to sin. Complete judgment or complete salvation. And that brings us to Easter. Because Easter is all about Jesus, and Easter is all about resurrection, and it's all about redemption, and it's all about salvation. Easter is all about grace. And how does it apply to Noah? I think Noah was just a regular dude, and he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, grace. God gave him grace. He's not a great guy. He's not some super spiritual guy. Yes, afterwards, righteous man, blameless, walk with God. But first things first, what's he get first? He gets grace. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. And God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. People are saved today and yesterday and tomorrow the same way. We're saved by grace. This means you don't earn it and you don't deserve it. 
And what happens is we know that God is a God who likes glory. And so he picks pathetic servants, pathetic people. So when that great thing happens, everybody knows who got the job done and that it wasn't us, it was God. I'm just a regular dude. Noah, just a regular dude. You guys that are saved, regular people. God looks down and he says, I love you. I'll forgive you. I'll save you. I'll change you. I'll walk with you. I'll embrace you. Here's my hand. Let's do this. Walk with me. That's the grace of God. And I love the fact that God gives favor, God gives grace to his people. How many of you have gotten grace this morning? I have. I rolled over this morning, looked at my wife and thought, no way, look at that. That's great. That's grace. Today I get to hang out with my family. That's great. That's grace. Today I get to come here. You guys are great. The music's great. That's grace. And here's the deal where Christianity differs from every other religion. Every other religion tells you good guys and bad guys. God loves the good guys. Be a good guy. Christianity says all bad guys. God is a good God. There's no glory in it for us. There's no boasting or pride or arrogance in it for us. There's no credit for us. We can just go, well, you know, I was loved. That's it. God's love changed me because God's that good. Every other religion invents a God that makes people look good and rewards those who are good in their own eyes. Christianity is the only one that tells us we're not that good. It's the only one that accounts for the human sin problem. It's the only one that gives a remedy. It's the only one that gives grace. And here's the key. Grace comes to us through Jesus. Somebody lived and then died. Somebody else lived and then died. Birth, sin, death. It's the way of the world. We saw that in Genesis 5. We're born, we sin, we die. And then Jesus died. And if he died for us, we don't die again. We live forever. So our life doesn't need to be birth, sin, death. It can be birth, new birth, eternal life. And that's great. That's grace. Jesus says, you give me your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll give you forgiveness. You give me your death, I'll take your death. I'll give you life. I'll give you my life. Really? That's amazing. That's grace. And not only did he tell us that, and not only did he promise us that, he proved it because he didn't stay dead. He rose again, as the angel told the woman in Matthew 28, which we read earlier. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. He was crucified, paying the penalty for sin, yours and mine. And he was resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and death now and forever. And the benefits of the cross and the benefits of the empty tomb are bestowed upon us. That's amazing. That's grace. And so it is all of grace from beginning to end. It's all of grace from Genesis through Revelation. The whole story is a story of grace. And it's a story that begins right here in Genesis. It's a story which is all about God and which is all about grace. You get what you don't deserve. 
you get grace. And Easter guarantees it. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we too long to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're amazed at the grace you showed to Noah. We'd like to get the grace that Noah got, but we have so much sin in our lives, it seems impossible. But then you give us Jesus, and he took all that sin on himself, and he paid the penalty for that sin, and he conquered that sin by rising again from the dead. That is so amazing. And Lord, here you are again, this morning, again, showing grace to the undeserving, to us. Lord, we thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you for that first resurrection on that first Easter morning. Thank you that Jesus has conquered sin and death for us. We thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.